Hi everyone, my name is Vincenzo Di Maria and you're listening to God Talks, double G, U, double T. Hi everyone, Maria here and welcome to season two of God Talks, double G, U, double T, a podcast focusing on business and tech for good, experience design and gut feelings. So this is, I must say, episode 20 of season two, and it's kind of an experiment to introduce season three with a new twist. So I met Vincenzo back in 2015. So I was pursuing a master's in service design at Politecnico di Milano, and I think you were the one who led the first workshop there, which was in a museum. So one thing that stood out for me and that I've seen over time as well, each time I would see you like at the Global Service Jam in Bologna or even in Sicily when I went to one of your events, events you were organizing on social innovation, you have this contagious passion when you talk about what you do and try to communicate this energy to participants when you teach or you run or facilitate a workshop. And we're going to be talking about training, facilitating, coaching, teaching. So uh, let me kick this off, actually. Who's Vincenzo? Vincenzo, as you say, is a passionate designer who does whatever he does with a lot of energy and a lot of beliefs in what he does. So I was born and grew up in Sicily, in the south of Europe, but I did my studies in Rome. I lived in London and Lisbon. I came back to Italy uh, my life has always been between creativity, design, facilitating meeting people and see what people can do with their creative energy. That sometimes turn into social innovation projects, which means doing something good for others. But most of my career has been in the spectrum of designing the intangible elements of what can be designed. So I come from designing products and objects and stuff like this, you know, but I'm always interested in the space between objects and people. So if you design a product or a digital device or whatever complicated system you can imagine, but no one is interacting with it, it's such a waste of time. So I'm interested in designing the space for experience, the space for interaction, the space for services to happen. And that take me more into slightly behavioral science, understanding how people behaving in their mental model. So Vincenzo is somebody who's passionate about people, after all. And uh, people do great things, behave in a quirky, strange way sometimes. And we can only match different ways of behaving with our designs. Thank you for that. I like the way you're putting this together. And part of it, actually, I can relate to in a way where you're saying that you come from a background where you're designing objects. Now, you showed this object as we're on camera, but who would be listening this to the audio? It was just objects like physical stuff, really, yeah. that you can see. Form and function, obviously, as a designer, it's not just forms. And I can relate to that because I have a background as well in physical products and physical spaces. And for me, what led me to you know, pursue a master's in service design, and this is where I met you as well, is the why. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing what we're doing? That was the main question that was missing for me in a certain way when designing stuff. So how did you end up to where you're at today? Especially, and I'm going to start with facilitating because this is how I got to, to meet you, mm -hmm. uh, see you in action. Where did you get this um, contagious energy and passion from? Well, I should probably thank a mix of experiences that I did during my career. First of all, when I finished my master in industrial design at Central Smarting in London, 
I got the chance and opportunity to work in a research center called Design Against Crime. We're trying to use design to reduce or prevent crime. For me, it was a bit of a creative challenge. How uh, can you anticipate the dark creativity of people trying to steal a bike or do anything else, you know, robbing you the ATM machines or pickpocketing in, on the metro? How can you be more creative and more clever than those people? They've been creating in their own dark way. And so for me, it was a bit of a creative challenge. And I got to do a lot of research with people. That took me as well, not just to interview users, which is what we usually do when we design services and experience, but also to interview thieves or engaging with stakeholders which are not the usual stakeholders so you need to discover your ability not just to interview people to run a good interview which is an art in its own right but also to engage different groups of stakeholders and manage their expectations and trying to let something emerge that was part of i would say facilitating a conversation that led to new information so increase the shared visibility of what's our understanding of the problem some people were saying, I'm not stealing bikes. I'm just taking them away if they are badly locked. And for us, it was like, okay, what is the inside there? The other aspect of facilitation probably came from uh, the GEM community. And I should, I should thank Adam Lawrence that you, you've been hosting on this podcast for that contagious sort of community of people wanting to do things. And it's strange because coming from a design background, you know, I studied design, I studied industrial design. I know what affordance mean and what all the how to design product services and, and, and the elements in between, when all the design thinking bubble burst and uh, there was this idea that anybody can think and act like a designer, I said, well, what should be my role then as a professional designer or somebody who studied for years the subjects? And I find naturally myself to be the facilitating agent within that community. Like, okay, there's a group of people trying to work together there is a brainstorming session, very unruled and unstructured. What, what's your role as a professional designer? Can you add quality? Can you add depth to the level of thinking? It's just the first idea that we had, or it's more about iterating and visualizing. I find myself visualizing a lot what people were saying, and that was helpful to afford the conversation. So, yeah, I think that naturally I wasn't doing anything more than just being a designer. But within a room of non-designers, I became the facilitator, the person that facilitated the sort of participatory creative process. So that, I think, it becomes contagious because in the moment you show something, even if it's a bad, you know, squiggle on the, on the wall, or you're, not, you're not afraid, you have some creative confidence to share with the other people in the room, people get impressed and they start to build on top of that. So that's the, it's an enabling factor. What I should say though, because sometimes I got clients calling me, it's like, hey, do you have 17 service designers? I was like, why? Uh, we need to facilitate an event. I'm not saying that service designer or designers are immediately good facilitators. I mean, I know very amazing designers that are very good at what they do, but they don't work very well when you put them in a room full of people and you ask them to lead an exercise or workshop. So just some designers have the sort of personal attitude, capacity, theatrical experience to hold the space, hold the stage, and get people to pay attention to what you say. So that's, I think, it's some of the aspects of being contagious, which is strange after the pandemic, being contagious, but that's, that's what it is. Yeah, true. Actually, I didn't think about that one <laughs> in that sense. And you referred to Adam Lawrence episodes, two episodes, actually. Mm -hmm. We had... Uh, so episode 24 and 25, if I'm not mistaken, of season one, this is where you bring back the, the theatrical aspect to it, which 
you use as well, I guess, in uh, in your uh, facilitation. And yes, I, I totally agree that not every designer is a facilitator and shouldn't be actually because we, we need both at the end of the day. Yeah, uh, It's all about working together, as you were saying. Now, I just want to go back to something that is not completely related to facilitation, but more about research, like very specifically, but facilitating mm -hmm. the conversation again. You said you interviewed thieves, robbers. How did you find them? Well, when you start working on a project with clients, you got the right stakeholders in the room. In the case, working at Design Games Crime back in time, working with Camden Council with Metropolitan Police, Transport for London, all the stakeholders involved. And there were the people pointing out, you know, prolific thieves that they knew who they were and then they knew their problems. So it was easy to go to Brick Lane in East London and, and find them and approach them. And, uh, you know, there are different ways and techniques you can do that. And that, I don't know if it's part of the acting of facilitation, but if I say mystery shopping, isn't that an act of acting? You act out to be customer. In this case, if you approach somebody trying to sell you a stolen bike, yes, you're acting as customer and you ask a few information about the bike and sometimes they're very happy to tell you things for example something that we weren't expecting is that these were very open to tell us about the different perpetrator techniques on how to steal bikes and there are about seven that we cluster to be the most common techniques so they were very proud because it's like oh something I, look this is a technique i invented i do this and this and uh, and you're like, oh, interesting. Uh, I should never lock the bike again in that way because otherwise it's going to be an easy target for thieves. So it's about get the sort of dark side of creativity mode and trying to anticipate. For for me, it was, again, going to research. It was really using a range of techniques because we did a lot of observation as well. We stayed hours looking at parking lots, bike parking lots, and see what people were doing, how how the users were locking their bikes properly, how the misusers are locking their bike not properly, <laughs> and how the abusers were taking advantage of all the situations. So it's very kind of ethnography type of research that others, that's just based on observation. Then, of course, you can go and contaminate the fields by interacting with people or by creating prototypes, which are, okay, let's change the setting. Let's move the bike stands or, the, for example, in London, as in the rest of Europe, there's a lot of fly parking. This doesn't apply to Copenhagen, Amsterdam or places where there is such a high density of bikes. The bikes are everywhere. But in cities like London or other cities in Europe, bikes are actually locked against something, which is a lamppost or a bike stand. And at that point, a lot of people lock their bike, the sort of fly parking, it means you lock your bike to a fence, to a lamppost, which is not the proper bike parking. And that creates a lot of problem, not just to the users, the thieves, but also like to a disabled person passing on the ground floor and you know, blind people going around, kids from school, because things get stuck in the middle. I'm not even getting to the macro, micro mobility, sort of scooter sharing and, uh, and bike sharing sort of services, because that got very complicated urban setting. But it's interesting to see how many research techniques you can facilitate as a designer, from just observing, to listening, to interviewing, to creating props and artifacts that you put in the ground, to change the setting of a physical environment or a digital environment and see how people will react in a test modality, offering them two options like A-B testing. A, we'll go to bike stands, let's see what people prefer, and you wait there for a week and see what people like the most. So it's interesting. This is the end of this short section of the episode. Watch out for the next release.